This episode is brought to you by Badger's Vote and the Andrew Goodman Foundation. Hello everyone, my name is Shreya Vanniapadiai. And my name is Tamia Folks. And we are Andrew Goodman Foundation Ambassadors from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and we are so excited to welcome you today to today's episode of Podcast Your Vote. We hope that this podcast on civic engagement and voter mobilization will provide both an escape from your everyday tasks and also an increased awareness about how to take action in the world we hope to build and shape. And today we are so excited to continue in our celebration of Women's History Month by chatting with our incredible guest, Cynthia Ritchie Terrell. And she's the incredible founder and executive director of Represent Women, among many other accomplishments. Um, And before we get started, we wanted to quickly introduce ourselves and our guests. So we're going to go through and say our names, positions and titles, pronouns, and our special question of this episode is who is a woman that inspires you or who you've been reflecting on the legacy of this month? And so Cynthia, if you wanted to start. Sure. Uh, My name is Cynthia uh, Ritchie Terrell, and I'm the founder of Represent Women. Um, have done a lot of different things in politics. I helped uh, work on campaigns and founded some, helped found some nonprofits. And my pronouns are she, her. And I'll say a woman who inspires me is my youngest daughter, Rebecca Ritchie, who works for an organization called Climate Clock. She's a few years older than you two. She's 23, just 23. She's been working at this job for two years and building an international team of advocates from around the world to um, really highlight the impact of climate change on our environments. And maybe some of you have seen it, it's a big digital countdown clock. But one of the things that I especially appreciate about her role and the role of the team there is they also have this lifeline clock to show what kinds of things that we can do to offset the years of damage uh, to the climate. And I think that I find that inspiring because I feel like there's a lot of um, understandable anxiety and consternation and um, focus on what the problems are right now. But unless we can pivot and really figure out what the solutions are and what our, how we can use our leverage to hold power accountable and make change happen, complaining about the problems doesn't really matter that much. It's not a productive thing to talk about all day long. So that's my, my woman of, uh, that I'm, I'm inspired by is uh, my youngest daughter, Beck Ritchie, and her work with Climate Clock. That's awesome. Also so incredible to hear that she works for Climate Clock. I've never heard of someone who works there, but the organization and the clock itself is so profound and really important. So I'm really glad that we also have young people kind of actually participating in that informing of the public um, of that important issue. And that's super cool that you shared that. I guess that I will go next. My name is Tamia Folks. I'm the co-host of this podcast and Andrew Goodman Foundation Ambassador. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And uh, a woman who inspires me that I've been reflecting on the legacy of this month is just my mom. Um, I love my mom. She's the best. She always does profound things every day, but I really just appreciate how much she cares and invests in other people. My mom's a dentist. And uh, I think that every day to go through caring for someone in that kind of intimate way that we don't think about on a daily basis is really cool. And it's not something that I think that I could do in part because I'm a germaphobe and also (laughs) just because it was of what I was always called to, but I love my mom and I think she's awesome in that way. <laughs> I also love your mom. She's so sweet. <laughs> um, I would also celebrate my mom, but since we've both done family members, I'm gonna do <laughs> I'm gonna do something different. Um, mine would be more of a group of women, but I think like many of the women mentors and like professors I've had in my life have just been so impactful to who I am today and how I've kind of shaped my career and professional um, career and personal path. Um, I am like currently on the job search and I've had so many mentors who have really helped me throughout that process and have really helped me find my voice and standing up for myself and my career goals and aspirations. And I think that's something that not many people talk about, especially because professionalism with women is like a weird topic sometimes. So um, I would say my like women mentors and professors. Are and really Shreya's awesome. mom is a professor, so yes. we know so it also stems from that. <laughs> yes, but as we get into today's topic um, and background, we just wanted to hear a little bit about the organization that you founded, Represent Women. Um, we, of course, know about it. We've done our research, and it's such a cool organization. So can you just give a little bit of a synopsis of the work that you do and what the goal of starting that was? 
Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and thanks so much for having me on. I'm really honored that uh, I'm one of your guests during Women's History Month. I feel like, oh, gosh, I better live up to that um, expectation. Um, well, I, I got my start working in politics, super exciting, fun, crazy, you know, you work like 30 hours a day, and then you either elect somebody or you don't. And after you work for um, a few election cycles, you realize, wow, there's some voters that really matter. Most voters don't really matter. We have a lot of uncompetitive elections. A lot of voters go unrepresented for one reason or another because of their party or their race or their gender or their policy ideals their entire lives. And um, so it was that realization about the American political system that I think nudged a bunch of us, namely my husband and myself and others, to come together to found this nonprofit, Fair Vote, that, that works on thinking big, like, wow, we need an affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. We need to get away from the Electoral College. We need to uh, embrace universal voter registration. We need to register 16 and 17-year-olds. We need to reform the antiquated winner-take-all voting system and of ranked choice voting. All that was super exciting. Did that for um, like 20 years off and on one way or another, had had kids and did other local political things as well. But the um, the uh, the centennial of suffrage um, that granted women the right to vote in 1920 was approaching. And I had always tracked like uh, the where the United States ranked uh, in among the world's countries. And the US is always around 110 or 102 or you know pretty far behind all established democracies or most established democracies. And so began to think of around a project around that and, and looking into why that was. And um, it doesn't take thinking about it for very long to realize it's not that there are better women in the countries that rank above the United States, nor are there better men, nor are there better um, non-binary people. It's, it's that they have different rules and they have different systems. And um, I realized there just wasn't much of a focus or conversation about that, um, about our, our the structure of our democracy um, in this country. Uh, there's a vibrant conversation happening all over the world about gender quotas and about proportional representation and about legislative changes to make sure women can serve effectively. That wasn't really happening in the United States. So I first, it was a project of Fair Vote uh, called Representation 2020. We did some great research on the impact of ranked choice voting and uh, the impact of donors and what they can do to help women run. Um, but then we branched off in 2018 and became a separate organization and now um, do quite a bit of work with research and with partnerships. And I can get more into that later in the show. Absolutely. And kind of given your mission with Represent Women and your own passion for um, creating more democratic systems of governance, could you speak a bit about the barriers that are specific to women in voting and also maybe specifically women of color? Yes. Well, as we all know, women women are underrepresented in politics at every level of government. And again, it's not that they're not qualified women problem solvers in every community um, working at every level of government in one way or another. But um, we have a, a voting system and electoral norms that uh, simply recreate the status quo year after year. And partly it has to do with um, who gets recruited to run for office and whom donors think are uh, qualified and viable candidates. So it's those white guys who are in office, who are incumbents, who get recruited to run um, because they seem like a that's what a normal candidate looks like as a white guy, particularly an older white guy. Um, and so women, women, um, aren't recruited to run as often. Um, and then uh, when they do run, they face a voting system that really, um, really protects uh, incumbents, um, particularly at the, at the national level, um, the, the rate of competitive elections, uh, congressional districts, um, where there's really a chance for a challenger to win is just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So if you're if you're if you're challenging somebody who's an incumbent, it's very unlikely that you're going to win. I think they're some good stat from the 2020 House elections is that I think 185 women ran as challengers and 1.8% of them won. So you just think about that number, 185, we're all excited, all these women running for office, yay! 1.8% of them won. Now, if you're running for an open seat, it's more likely, it's about 40% of the time uh, women are going to run those offices. But if you're running as an incumbent, you know, 96% of incumbents win. And it just happens that white men are most incumbents right now. So they're winning at a higher rate because that's what the system is designed to do is to protect incumbents and make sure they keep winning. So 
Um, but the, you know, there, there, are, there are so many barriers, it would be uh, time consuming right now, I think, to unpack all of them, but they obviously relate to the balance of family life, the, the caregiving roles that women are often um, um, uh, just by default end up providing in families. Um, it's, it's the way the infrastructure works and what we're accustomed to. It's the school schedule. It's um, just, it's pay inequity. There's so many um, variables that end up uh, as barriers to women, um, both as candidates and as elected officials. And that's, so that's what we're focused on at Represent Women is really trying to study the barriers that women face in politics and then addressing those barriers with systemic or strategies or structural strategies to really reduce those barriers so that women have an equal opportunity um, uh, to run and to win. We're not we're not all, anything about like giving women a special leg up. We're just trying to remove the barriers that women face. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the arguments, and there have been a lot of arguments made for what could make these roles more accessible for women. One of them has been caucuses and women's caucuses. So can you explain kind of what that argument is and why that might benefit women in having a more um, grounded and stagnant community that is coming together um, and supporting them and, and moving towards focusing on goals that are centered around women's issues and also just progress generally? Yeah, I think it's a great question. We studied the role of caucuses at the state legislative level, maybe starting five or six years ago, just to get a sense of how many states have them. I think 22 or 23 states have them. Their um, composition has changed somewhat over the last 25 years or so. I think it, it used to be it used to be that back before the 1980s, Republican and Democratic women were about as likely to serve in state legislatures and in Congress as well. And the caucuses used to be bipartisan. Um, that was the norm. And it would be caucuses that were brought together of women legislators. Sometimes men were in them also. I believe in Maryland in the Women's Caucus, there that men serve in that as well or want to be part of it. Um, and, and like other kinds of um, community building opportunities. It's a way to support each other in the legislative process um, to, um, to just build awareness of, of some of the barriers that, that women face. There's a good story in the Maryland legislature where um, I think it wasn't until maybe eight or 10 years ago that there was a woman's restroom on the Senate side in Annapolis in Maryland, because there just hadn't been enough women senators, state senators to demand it. But that's the kind of thing that women's caucuses can really um, help to examine what's going on internally in the legislative process and make sure um, that they advocate for things that make it possible for women to serve effectively once they've gotten elected. So this, this, hasn't, this isn't the norm yet, but women's caucuses could become engines of change for things like on-site childcare or paid leave or proxy voting um, to allow people to serve on a committee virtually if they're in San Diego and the state legislature is me meeting in San Sacramento. Um, so that's the role that, that's, that legislative state caucuses um, could play. I think at the federal level, I think that the, um, the women's caucus that maybe Barbara Mikulski started, I believe I'm right, in Maryland in the early 90s, um, after the first year of the woman happened. Um, that has been really a, um, I think, a profound and powerful experience for the women who are part of that. It's it's always been bipartisan, um, and it's been a place for women to come together. There are no journalists or outsiders involved or allowed in, so who knows what they talk about. I'm assuming they talk about their families and their work and policy, and um, uh, they really have built community with one another in that uh, National Women's Caucus um, in, in the House and the Senate. And then I think any opportunities for women to come together um, and exchange ideas to support one another, to build that kind of community that's really required for success, all those things are gonna advance women's representation in politics in one way or another, um, in some ways that are obvious and in some ways that we may not know for a generation or so, but I think modeling that kind of um, community building is important. And I think caucuses play a role in that. For sure, yeah, I really like what you mentioned about this idea of like community building and that really forming as, or functioning as almost like a consciousness raising situation, even in politics and Congress and like legislative areas now, I think that's a really cool concept. Um, I was also kind of wondering with, you know, while caucuses might help women maybe once they're in government or at least for representation of women, um, 
there are more issues with just running in general. Like there's a lot of disparities of women running for seats um, because of the many barriers that exist and like misogyny in general in politics, as you mentioned, white men holding these seats. Could you speak a bit more about some of the reasons that women are running at lower rates than men? And also how can political parties um, and other political institutions such as like PACs adapt to um, become more inclusive for women to be able to run for office and do that in general? Yeah, I I think that, um, I think we see change happening slowly um, where it's becoming politically smart for candidates, like in, in Maryland, where I am right now, there are a number of men running, I, I don't know, there are 10 or 11 men running for governor. Every one of them, I believe, except one, has chosen a woman as a running mate, not because there's a rule or a system that says you have to do that, but those gubernatorial candidates, these are the ones on the Democratic side, know it's an instinct, like, wow, I've got to expand to the largest possible part of the electorate, um, so I better have a woman as my running mate. And I think that that kind of activity of executives using their power, um, both for their own um, uh, self-preservation, you know, so they can win elections, but also to demonstrate <clears throat> that it actually is a is a uh, added value to the campaign, as Biden has done at the the national level, appointing uh, the most diverse cabinet ever and nominating uh, diverse candidates for the Supreme Court and for judgeships, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of that makes a huge difference, I think. And, and so there's a role for executives like a president, mayor, governor, candidates for those positions. Um, but there's also a role for political parties, I think. And what we see in countries that are um, doing better, which are again, about 72 countries rank above the United States in women's representation. A lot of those countries have rules for political parties where they have to recruit women to run for office. Um, and it's either a rule that the party itself has decided on voluntarily, it's a, a voluntary target, or it's a rule, it's a, a gender quota of some sort that the legislature or the, even the constitution in some places um, has adopted. And, and that has a huge impact. When somebody makes a rule that says, wow, we've got to have X percent women or in Chile, I love the way that the previous Chilean constitution was written said, no gender can be more than 60% of any decision-making body. That just turns things upside down and all of a sudden there are all these qualified women candidates and the parties have to recruit them to run because the, the rule says they, they, you know, no gender, I mean, no party, no gender in this situation can be more than 60%. I think we could adopt those same rules on a voluntary level for parties in this country. Um, and the national parties could provide financial incentives for state and local parties that do a better job recruiting more women to run, more diverse women to run would get more money from the national party. That's, that's what we see, the, the data tells us is working in other countries. And I think we should follow that model here. Um, one of the countries that I, I think is so interesting because it's so close to us is um, Mexico that is not a bastion of uh, liberalism. It's, it's the second most Catholic country in the world, I believe, behind Brazil. And yet they have really been innovative in the kinds of reforms they've adopted. They had a, a quota um, that they talked about um, a while ago, and it, and it was somewhat effective. And then they had a, a proportional voting system that wasn't fully proportional, if you will, but they kept evolving the rules and evolving the rules and tweaking them and um, getting the best and the brightest minds to figure out, wow, how can we really push gender balance? And um, they've now have a very aggressive um, uh, target for women candidates. And now the that's, that, that's not only at the federal level, but there are more women governors in Mexico proportionally than in the United States, for example. And that's also now carrying down to the local level. So we see that interaction between local parties, state parties, and then federal parties can really have a huge impact on the kinds of rules and, and systems we adopt and can present a model that can be used um, across sectors as well. Yeah, I love all of those points. I'm also wondering too how in, you know, having this organization that really centers around electing women and ensuring that they are getting the exposure that they need, how do you maintain accountability as an organization that you're not just, you know, putting more candidates out there who aren't going to, you know, effectively represent the people that are in their community? How do you ensure that not only like going through training or 
vetting those candidates or, you know, discussing with them what truly needs to get done. I feel like we've had so much legislation on the floor in the past year that people have responded to and said, okay, the people that I voted for aren't representing me. And so how do you avoid that issue? Well, that's a hard question. I would say a big component of it is having a better voting system. I mean, that went a part of the disconnect between who gets elected um, in a lot of jurisdictions still in the United States is that candidates can split the vote, particularly if more than one woman candidate runs um, and, or more than one candidate of color from a certain community. Um, you could have three black women running against one white man. The majority of voters want one of the black women to win, but the white man wins with a plurality, let's say in a primary. Maybe he wins with just 40%. Obviously, he's not the first choice of 60% of voters, but he wins because of the, the rules of the electoral system um, that are winner-take-all rules and plurality voting rules. But that's the you know, the nifty solution of ranked choice voting is that it addresses that problem. It means that multiple women can run, multiple candidates of color can run, multiple candidates who espouse a certain issue um, or policy um, uh, analysis can run. And if the majority of voters support that policy analysis or that woman, um, then it's far more likely that candidate who represents the majority is going to win. And so um, a couple of the key facts of, of ranked choice voting is that um, the, the more candidates of color and more women are running because they know they can run without splitting the vote. Parties, getting back to political parties, don't tell those women to wait their turn. In so many cases now, in a traditional system, run a, a plurality system, the party says, no, we've got too many black women running. We're gonna lose if you run, stop, wait, you can't run yet. But in a ranked choice voting election, we just saw this in New York City, multiple women of color ran. And, you know, lo and behold, multiple women of color won. In fact, 61% of the New York City Council is now women and 80% of those are younger, of those who won are young black uh, women of color, which I think is just, transformational, you know, and so um, that's just such a great illustration of, of changing a rule, um, changing the system, um, addressing the barrier in the system, which I would say is, is winner-take-all voting, um, can really transform uh, the, the composition of councils. And we've seen that in, in all the jurisdictions across the United States that have adopted ranked choice voting. I think the average number of women on the city councils and jurisdictions with ranked choice voting is 51%, which again, lo and behold, is the, is the percentage of the population of women. So um, I'd say it's doing a pretty good job. And similarly, um, a higher percent of mayors elected in jurisdictions with ranked choice voting are women. I think 43% or 44% compared to about 30 or 29% in cities without ranked choice voting. So I think that's a great example of a systems change that is um, a virtuous circle. The more women run because of a ranked choice voting situation, more um, uh, policy reforms like public financing and term limits and other things are enacted because they go well with ranked choice voting. Um, and then more women are elected uh, that who are reflecting the majority will of communities. And then um, issues are being moved forward in ways that are different for the first time because policy perspectives or perspectives on policies uh, from the lived experiences of women and people of color and people who traditionally, you know, lower income people who haven't been part of the political decision-making process all of a sudden now finally are part of the decision-making process. And that's profound. A great example of this in New York City is among many things that the majority women council has done is that I saw recently that they passed a law that everybody advertising um, new jobs has to post both the minimum and the maximum um, salary level to really combat wage inequity there. And just a great example, like women govern differently and that's an example. So I'm excited about that kind of uh, uh, change happening. Yeah, and you mentioned ranked choice voting, but there are other forms of um, of strategies and systems that people can use for elections, including like multi-winner districts, ranked choice voting, and then also um, discussing U.S. house expansion, just giving people more representation mm. in the places that they live. Um, yeah. Can you share like a little bit about what your perspectives on those are and, and also just explain a little bit about what that might look like in, in someone's local area? Sure. Um, well, the United States has a long tradition of using multi-winner districts. It used to be the norm 
Um, and uh, 10 states still use them for the state legislature, including Maryland. Well, I'm, I'm sitting in a district that elects three delegates and a state senator. So there are four people that represent me. It's no surprise that um, three of them are women, three of them are people of color. There's just more diversity. It's awfully hard for one person to be both a Democrat and a Republican, both a man or a woman, both a Latina and a African-American. But in a multi-seat district, you can have a fuller reflection of the community represented. Um, and, and so it, it, it works very well. And particularly when it's combined with ranked choice voting, it means that um, there's just a, a very accurate um, reflection of voter will in terms of who gets elected. Um, so that we see that as a very exciting reform. There's a bill in Congress called the Fair Representation Act that uh, Don Beyer from Virginia introduced and my representative, Jamie Raskin, my dear member of Congress friend, um, signed on and a bunch of other progressives have signed on and some moderates as well to say, look, we should mandate this for the House of Representatives. We should elect three to five people everywhere in the country, and we should elect those people with ranked choice voting. And that would mean you'd have partisan fairness. You'd have more rural Democrats getting elected in Oklahoma. You'd have some moderate Republicans getting elected in Manhattan because they live there and they deserve representation. And you'd have just a, um, a much fuller expression of racial diversity instead of just electing one person to represent 100% of the people in a district, you'd again have multiple constituencies of color having the power to elect candidates of choice. So um, in a in a five seat district, um, you know, you need 17% of the vote plus one to win. And there are a lot of parts of the country where you'd have Latino representation and African-American representation and Asian-American representation would be stronger in those um, in those communities as well, because the candidates, when they're running in a ranked choice voting election with multi-winner districts, know they're accountable to the voters. Um, elections are more competitive, which is in the voters' interest, and um, and campaigns are are more responsive to the community. Um, candidates are more responsive. <clears throat> the exciting um, element of adding members to the the House of Representatives is something that um, is, is long overdue. Every 10 years from the beginning of the, the country till um, 1910, we had a census, we added members because the population grew and it just made sense. Um, but we stopped doing that in 1910. So the population has tripled. So now I can't remember exactly the number. I think members of Congress, members of the House of Representatives represent what roughly 800,000, 850,000 people? Like that's a lot of people to really represent well. So if um, there's a there's a lot of scholarship on this right now, um, and some great groups working on it. Um, there's a terrific um, group that I hope everybody will um, look at their report. It's the American Academy of Arts and Sciences brought together thought leaders and came up with a report called Our Common Purpose. And one of their recommendations is multi-seat districts. In fact, maybe the first or second one, ranked choice voting is one of the first or second ones. And then um, adding members to the house is right up there as well. And you can read more about it on that website. It's Our Common Purpose is the report. But the idea is, look, um, if you add, let's say we added 100 seats, um, those are going to be open seats. And as we talked about it, uh, a few minutes ago, women and people of color have a much greater chance winning an open seat race than running against an incumbent as a challenger. So I think it's a, it, it, it not only is good for democracy in that it just expands the um, voters holding their representatives accountable, but it will make for a more reflective Congress when it happens. And Obviously, we, we probably can't just keep adding 100 people every um, decade or so, but the United States has one of the smallest legislatures um, in the world per capita. We just are constrained and members of Congress are overworked and, and the committees are um, hard to staff all the different things. So having uh, more members of the House, I think, would undoubtedly strengthen our practice of democracy and the experience of it. It's interesting, you know, I've talked about this now for, I don't know, 15 years or so. The first question people always ask me is, but where would they sit? As though like the whole conversation about how to strengthen democracy depends on like whether there's a chair in that particular building, you know? And I would say, oh, we are so far beyond having to worry about that, particularly with virtual participation and so forth. So I'm, I'm a enthusiastic supporter of that. One of the reasons that I like thinking about 
house expansion, it's an example of a big idea that answers a lot of the challenges that we're facing on our democracy. And I think we are so anxious about wherever we are in the current election cycle that mo much of what we collectively do is responding to the needs of the next election. If it's in three months, two months, one month, we give money to individual candidates, we maybe go door to door, we canvass, we, you know, we, we live in winner take all communities. So we have to choose just one person. We don't have ranked choice voting everywhere yet. But in order to, to really have the transformation into our democracy that we all crave, I think we've got to step back and look at the big structural changes and the big ideas, not all of which are going to happen in my lifetime, but we have to stop uh, start engaging with them now so that by the time you guys are in Congress, you and your peers, you've we've talked about them and socialized them and normalized them so that there's a movement for these things. Like, of course, we need a stronger democracy. It not only impacts our own lives internally, but it's impacting everybody on the planet right now. So anyway, there's my pitch. Think big. For sure. Also, in terms of the chairs question, I've heard foldouts are a great alternative. <laughs> <laughs> yoga mat. Yeah. Yoga mat. <laughs> I think that would be stool. Chair, chair. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Out, maybe some outside time on the stairs. Yeah. So oh, maybe a patio. <laughs> Build a patio. <laughs> a lot of options. Um, see, you're already thinking creatively and innovatively. That's what we need. Innovation. Um, well, so the current state, anyways, of representation for women and the U.S. Congress in general is that women make up only women make up 51 percent of the U.S. population, but only make up 31 percent and less of both state and federal elected office positions. And that is insane because women are clearly a bigger part of this nation than they have representation for. Um, despite this, and despite all of the conversation that we've been having about the need for representation um, in like most elected offices, a lot of people have been seeming to believe that we're almost in this sort of post-feminist state of politics because we have Kamala Harris, a brown and black woman as the vice president of the United States. And so a lot of people have said, you know, like, what more do you want? Like, when are we going to be done? And I think that that also reminds me of the RBG quote about the Supreme Court, where someone had asked her, like, what will be enough for you? And she said, nine women justices. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I was wondering kind of what your thoughts on that claim were and also any advice for kind of combating that sort of rhetoric of, you know, what more do you want? How, how much more will you keep on fighting for this like goal that it seems to have been we've already reached? Yes, that's a sobering reality. I think that that's true. And I, I think that there's a, um, I think the particular unique kind of um, oppression that women face. Of course, a lot of people face oppression for all kinds of reasons in this country, but there's a certain combination of biology and religion and history, you know, that for tens of thousands of years, women have played these second-class citizen supporting role characters. Um, and while it's great, of course, to have uh, a woman vice president, um, we know, obviously, that does not undo those tens of thousands of years of of um, of second class citizenship um, in 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 any respect, and um, in no more than, of course, having Barack Obama has you know fixed racism, or having a Jewish senator has undone anti semitism, or having somebody who's Asian American run for president has like dealt with violence and hate against Asian Americans. Um, so I don't think we're in a post anything world. I think we're we're just warming up really. And um, I would say to go out on a limb that part of it falls on those of us who are so eager to have representation that's fair, that we haven't always um, been very strategic in what we've asked for. And this is true around the world as well, often, in a lot of countries, people push for a quota of 25% women. In every country, women make up 51% of the population. So if I were in charge of the strategy, I would push for like 90% women or 85% women. Then the compromise gets us down to 50. But if you start off asking for something less than the your goal, you're never going to reach your goal. So part of it is a, 
is our communication strategy, I think, our collective communication strategy. And I think a hesitancy to ask for too much that is a manifestation of all those tens of thousands of years of fearing being attacked for asking too much. I mean, it's, it's playing exactly into the cultural phenomenon which we exist in 2022. And I think we need to snap out of that. We need to say, oh wait, no, this has gone on way too long. You know, give us the next 250 years mostly women and we'll see we'll compare the results after that you know we'll see how well our veterans are treated and our children are raised and we'll see about wage equity then etc cetera, etc cetera. so part of it is i think we need to be much more aggressive in our demand so that the compromise point is actually what we want then we need to tell the narrative better about what the lack of women's perspective now is costing us the fact that not having women as decision makers is, um, is endangering our families, is endangering our economy, is endangering our, our climate and our economic well-being. And I don't think we tell that story very well. I think there's a tendency to think that somehow people will just, white men will just step back. If we say, wow, there are a lot of great women. They've done good things. Let us in. Somehow like the doors are going to open and we're all going to march in, you know, but that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen during Black History Month. Like Black people don't have all the power they need. And it doesn't happen during Women's History Month. It doesn't happen during Latino History Month. And um, so I think we need to reposition ourselves and our argument. And we need to shoot much higher for what we're asking for and I, I think we need to um, challenge people and hold people accountable continuously. And I think we need to engage the people who can help us do that more effectively um, in, a, in a better way, whether that's investors, people like Melinda Gates, who's a fabulous advocate for women's representation and gender equality. We need to engage her, help her figure out strategies that are going to accelerate the, the, the process of getting to gender balance and inclusive representation as quickly as we can. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, that was perfect and all very valuable to hear. I think to close- uh, Can I add oh, something to yeah, that though? Definitely. Sorry to interrupt. One thing that I, I think is, um, is sometimes useful when I'm talking about these kinds of big policy changes is it's not really that um, foreign to us in the United States generation after generation has done some version of this. In the 1910s, we had the progressive area. We, we created the weekend. We ended child labor. Um, many workers had were, could join a union for the first time. And similarly, in the 1960s, we had the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Um, um, we uh, That led, I think, to Title IX. We're just in the 50th anniversary of um, a, a package of policies that were enacted and embraced and enforced so that girls um, had equal access to educational and athletic opportunities. Um, similarly, we passed the Americans with Disability Act, which is a package of legislation. It was a system strategy to address the um, barriers that, that women, excuse me, the people in wheelchairs and, and with other kinds of disabilities face in our society. At no point in any of those reform movements did we say that the person who was marginalized had to change. We didn't say, oh, we're gonna help the girls navigate a bad system. No, we didn't do that. We did Title IX. We didn't tell the people in wheelchairs, we're gonna help you get over that curb. We know it's hard, but you just have to try harder. We're gonna train you because what you're lacking is an understanding of how to get over the curb. We're like, oh my gosh, there's a structural barrier. Somebody in a wheelchair can't get over that curb. What we need to do is reduce, we need to take away the structural barrier. We do the cutouts and curbs. And the, when you do a structural change, like a cutout and a curb, it's a convenient example, but I think it's an effective one. Not only is it effective for the community who's most um, disenfranchised, people in wheelchairs, turns out lots of people in the community, whether you're riding a bike or you're an older person or you have a stroller, all realize, wow, that cutout and the curb makes me be able to access the sidewalk also. But once you've done a systemic change, like a cutout and a curb or the Voting Rights Act or Title IX or marriage equality, all of those are, are systems changes. It's very 
it's very hard to go back on them. I mean, we see people questioning aspects of, of Title IX and all kinds of things all the time, but they're far more enduring, I think, than the um, some of the other strategies that are popularly employed right now, shall we say. No, and that's super helpful, especially in just breaking down what a structural change can look like. Yeah. I feel like we say that broadly and sometimes the vision even is not even clear. And so I feel like even something like the cutout and the curve is super helpful and just, you know, that's something that impacts us on a daily basis, regardless of whether or not you're in a wheelchair or you're, you know, walking down the street every day. It's something that we see. And I think that's what a structural change is. It's those things that impact everybody on a daily basis. So exactly. And that yeah. everybody benefits from and nobody now in their right mind would argue against that. Like who's right. gonna say like oh, we want to keep the people in wheelchairs marginalized. So no, no, <laughs> we're going to keep building those curbs the wrong way. Then you have a whole government that's built around making sure there are, there are rules that any city or county that's building a sidewalk has to go by those ADA rules. And that's the same kind of strategy that we need around representation and democracy. Like, wow, we need to, we need to look at the data. We need to employ the best practices. Then we need to enforce. Of course, we need to adapt them to each level of government, but we need that kind of an approach. And that's what I think will get us to where we want to be. Definitely. And for you, what excites you most about the future? What do you feel is, you know, the most promising or something that is promising that is getting you hype and excited about you know what's to come. I think we live in a really sobering and frustrating and traumatic era, especially right now, and especially young people. And so for you, and especially coming from your line of work, what is most exciting about the future? Yeah, well, there, that's a great question. There are a few different things. One is I think there's a lot more investment in democracy reform. Some big funders are in the space. That's exciting. Melinda Gates and the Arnold Foundation and um, Unite America and Catherine Murdoch are investing money into strategies around voting reform and democracy um, that really put voters first. And I think that's fabulous. Um, there are also new kinds of coalitions growing, which I think are important. I'm part of a fellowship program that's bringing um, nonprofit leaders from across the partisan spectrum together to talk about policies to, to, to build community there. I'm also part of a great coalition called the, called Reflect Us that um, the CEO is this fabulous woman, Tiffany Gardner, and uh, we are the nonpartisan women's representation organization. So really working to share best practices with one another, support each other's work, um, build a state network of, of women's representation um, advocates and policymakers. Um, that feels pretty exciting and transformational for me. But one of the things that's a little closer to home is um, two weeks ago, Represent Women hosted a Democracy Solution Summit where we brought together 45 women um, experts to talk about um, a number of pressing challenges, um, campaign finance reform, voting rights, the electoral college, redistricting, ranked choice voting, um, election administration. And we had uh, women frame the, the challenge, but the the rest of the sessions were focused on what the solutions were. And I would say we had, we created a space where women could talk to other women, like the Bechdel test. I felt like we really aced the Bechdel test in politics. We need a new name for that, like women talking to each other about policy in politics. And it was just fabulous. Like the women who were speaking noticed the difference. They were like, wow, this is awesome to be with other women talking about reform. And the attendees were like, wow, I didn't know there were so many women who could talk about reform. We had secretaries of state talking about how to solve election administration problems. We had Donna Brazil talking about voting rights and the legacy of Lana Guinier. It was just, it was fabulous. So that has sparked more ideas about collaboration and this idea of building women's leadership in the reform community, specifically in the democracy reform community and trying to do that um, at the national level and at the regional level and putting together in the same room advocates and, and activists who are working on the ground in a place like Santa Fe, New Mexico or in Oakland, California with, with um, policymakers in cities who are making those, um, writing legislation to make those reforms possible and really building on our collective experience as women and as leaders in our communities. So that's, that's something that I'm really excited to, to do and to build with this cohort of women um, in the next three to five to 10 years is to really say, look, you know, women have always been working on democracy, but we're claiming our space in a big way now. And 
you need our leadership, you, the reform community, for this to really work and for us to make the change happen that's required. And I think we've got the ingredients we need to make that work. So I'm super excited about that. Think of it as a ground up, top down, expanding the middle all at once and um, really building that the a new strategy that really um, plays on everybody's strengths and honors what's happening at the local level and uh, celebrates what's happening at the at the top levels as well. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there's definitely a lot to be excited about and a lot to a lot of room to grow from here. Um, one thing we kind of always come back to on this podcast is what can our listeners do to help? And like, how can we as college students and just young people in general get involved in these issues that we're really passionate about? And how can our generation maybe be a part of this change that you're trying to lead through Represent Women and we're all hoping to help with? <laughs> like, what are what what's some advice that you might have? Well, partly I would recommend that all of you start thinking of yourselves as leaders in one way or another, because people my age have not figured it out yet. So we need your help to help us to lead the way. So don't feel like your followers feel like you're the leaders and that you're you're part of the solution. Um, maybe that sounds patronizing to say, maybe you already feel that way. So that's great if you do. Um, there, there are lots of organizations that are doing this work wherever you are on the partisan spectrum or wherever you are regionally that you can plug into. There are lots of great ranked choice voting groups, for example. I think almost every state seems to have a group that's working either on legislation or a ballot measure on ranked choice voting. There are lots of great women's representation organizations that are working on, uh, you know, more directly with women candidates. They're, they're fabulous organizations, again, across the partisan spectrum and ones that are working with specific demographic groups. We, on the, on the Represent Women website, um, we gathered um, for the, the Democracy Solution Summit that I was just speaking about, um, we gathered recommendations from all of our panelists about what actions they would like people to take across the board, whether it's on redistricting or campaign finance reform or election administration, and those are all posted on our website. So people can go to the Take Action page of the Represent Women website and see what the experts have to say about how to get involved, um, what, what public financing kind of model to push for in, in your community. So I think that's another good, um, another good um, uh, resource. <clears throat> but I would also say that um, I think that it's important to, to, to build new models of how we interact and how we relate and just in a interpersonal way to try to lift up people, whether it's on social media platforms or in classrooms or within your organizations, whom you feel are making a difference. And just in our in our staff calls, we decided to do try to be more intentional about our affirmations with one another, because I think we tend to assume, oh, we're all appreciating everything everybody else is doing, but really taking the time to really affirm and reaffirm and reassure people and support people in our communities, I think that, I think we are also caught up in what seems like an inextricably terrible situation. I think we've got to start supporting each other person to person. I think that, that, that will be super helpful. But on the bigger scale, I would say, hey, you want change fast, look at what's going on around the rest of the world. Other countries are doing it modeling it. And that's super exciting. We've got some great data on our website, the Interparliamentary Union and UN Women and um, a number of other organizations are, are um, showcasing what women are doing in Nigeria or in um, Nepal or in um, Mexico, as I said. And there are, there's a lot that we can learn from other countries. So I also recommend people pay attention. Um, read those news stories on how, why there are women prime ministers in all those other countries, but not yet in the United States. For sure. Yeah. I think one thing we always talk about, and especially closer to the election last year, which seems like so, so long ago. It also yeah. seems like it was yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> the trauma is still fresh. <laughs> one thing we talked a lot about was really following reputable news sources and keeping mm. updated yeah. um, through those and not just watching like CNN or Fox on, on uh, like the television, but more like proper like, news um, like written sources are really important. Um, yeah. So that's cool. yes, yes. And understanding where that information is coming from that they're yeah. using. Like, was it an actual, is it a database that's reputable and, mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That's all that those are like the questions we had. And I so appreciated chatting with you and getting to learn from you and just talking more about the need for more representation. Um, cause it's so important. And as a podcast on voting and as two women in voting, we're really passionate about that topic and we're so excited yeah. to talk to you. Oh, one last thing, just in case you guys are interested in this, we are town of Tacoma Park uh, lowered the voting age to 16 for municipal elections. So that's <laughs> a fun effort that's going wow. on. And once you start talking about democracy issues in your community, in our town, we lowered the voting age to 16 and 17 year olds. We made sure that people who were on parole could vote. We made it uh, that candidates could um, campaign in apartment buildings. We're one of the only communities in the country where that's possible. Mm -hmm. Just think about that. Like it's not legally possible for a candidate to campaign in an apartment building, which we all know disenfranchises a lot of candidates and a lot of voters. So there, there are packages of reforms like that. They may not seem like they go together, but it was an amazing thing to have some of the, the, the people who had previously been incarcerated working with our kids who were then, you know, 14, 15, 16, to think about how advancing all of their voting rights, um, you know, lifted all boats. And so it's that those kinds of packages of reforms that I think are uplifting and inspirational. Yeah. And I mean, that's super interesting to hear, too, because I feel like there's even so much power, even beyond just letting a 16 year old vote and telling them that their opinion and what they know is enough to participate in democracy. Like, I feel like we hear on our college campus so much that people don't know who to vote for. Or they don't feel like they have the power or the capacity to do so because they haven't been told by anyone um, or they haven't been walked through exactly how. But I feel like to give that power to a young person is, is really exciting to, to hear about. Yeah, the data from the countries that use it is just amazing how um, engaged 16 and 17 year old voters are. and. Um, it's such a better time in life. Imagine, you know, when you're 18, you're leaving high school, you're leaving your community, you're between places, you don't have a home address, maybe you're joining the military, who knows what's going on when you're 18. But if you're 16, what we saw is that not only is the turnout of 16 and 17 year olds higher than everybody from 18 to 30 in Tacoma Park, which is significant, but they are taking their parents to vote who are maybe <laughs> first time voters, which was just so beautiful. But everybody's concern was, oh, the parents are gonna be telling the kids how to vote. But what is turning out to be the case is that the kids are helping their parents become more natural voters as well, or are frequent voters. So I think that's a great outcome as well. It sounds like Tacoma Park is the place to be. <laughs> Yeah, it's all a little insular. We've really got to branch out. There are a few other Boston, you know, Berkeley, but Cambridge, Massachusetts.